somebody. We good? All right, thanks, man. When I'm asked to study with somebody who's searching to look and make a decision for Jesus and for baptism into his church, I always begin with salvation. To be saved and to help people in being saved is to do our part in the messianic equation. Jesus was just asked, what did the Messiah come to do? He said, I came to seek and to save those who were what? Those who were lost. So I think that salvation is a good place to start. And I've heard in the past that we've likened the Messiah to a lifeguard at the pool, that the Messiah is a lifeguard. It works up to a point. The point being that in the everyday life of the pool, the lifeguard rarely has to do his job as a rescuer. And the Messiah was sent to rescue. It's a bad day when a lifeguard has to do their job as rescuers, but that's all the Messiah came to do. So most will never experience his role as Messiah unless, unless we're pointed or it is pointed out to us that we need rescuing. So when I start with the subject of salvation, I start and begin with something far more basic and deep and dark and brutally honest and real. Because I can remember taking a class in salvation and the professor, Dr. Pauline, actually began it this way, pointed something out to us that salvation has to come to people who feel they need rescuing, who feel that they will cry out to the Messiah for help. So he began his entire class in salvation with this verse right here. He said, the heart is more deceitful, Jeremiah said, than what? Than all else. There isn't anything more deceitful than the what? Than the heart. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? You begin salvation here because until we realize this, we have no need of the Messiah as a rescuer. We may like him as a lifeguard. We may like him with the rules of don't run by the pool. Don't swim uh, until an hour after eating. No roughhousing in the pool. We may like him for rules like that, but we'll never experience him as Messiah until we figure this out right here. And in case that we thought that uh, Jeremiah is only talking about his own heart, that it's deceitful, that it's devious, it's worse than we think. I always remember that. It is worse than you think. It's actively involved in deceiving us in our inherent condition. Did you realize that we wake up each morning and our own heart is trying to deceive us? We have cherished ideas and truths that we swear are cherished ideas and truths that are based on nothing else but self-deception. And as I said, in case you think it's only Jeremiah's heart, he said, no, this is universal. Because back in verse five of the same chapter, he said, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in what? In mankind, in all humanity, and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. It's universal. All humanity has one of these hearts. You have one, I have one. 
All humanity has already made this flesh their strength. Everybody who's born has already hit the ground running in the opposite direction of God. That's us. And in a lot of cases, we're usually the last ones to know. The church has been going on for 2,000 years. It's had 2,000 years to get its act together and turn its heart towards God. And we find ourselves at the end of time, and this is the church. Rich and need of what? Nothing. Who's deceiving the church into believing they are rich and in need of nothing? Their own heart. You don't realize that you're what? Wretched, poor, blind, pitiable, naked. Salvation is based on need. Those who walk away from God have no need for what Jesus offers. And there are quite a few. But it's simply that they have no need. They may not have any particular problem with the way that God wants us to live. They may not have any particular problem with uh, uh, joining a church or anything like that. They may have no problem like that whatsoever. Their problem is when they walk away is they do not need what he's giving. My question is, is the church active in letting people know what he offers, what he really offers by pointing out everyone's needs? I'll correct that. The church is real good at pointing out someone else's needs. What are we lousy at? Pointing out our own. I'll gladly, I'll gladly tell Mark what he needs, but I ain't gonna tell Mark that I had to come to that conclusion too. You know, and maybe if I did, Mark might listen to me. So last week, our parable showed us that this deception was and is alive and well at work in the hearts of those of us who've decided to work in the vineyard. The 12-hour workers feel they deserve more because they what? Because they worked more. They were more dedicated. They were less lazy. And ultimately what they forgot was the grace that got them hired in the first place. The fairness of the vineyard owner who gave them a place in the vineyard, a place in the church. They forget their need. It seems that the longer they work, the less they remember about why they needed the work in the vineyard in the first place. They forget what the outside voice of the parable sounds like. Matthew has this week's parable come before the one we did last week. I save it for this week. Because there are two ways to be able to give a solution to a problem. You can either give the solution first and then give the problem. I like giving the problem first so we can have a need for the solution. So I'm going to look at that parable that comes before the one that we did last week. How is this worker, this professed believer, how are they supposed to show or know their own value? It's remembering where they came from. It's remembering that they were once standing outside, unemployed, just waiting for an opportunity for someone to give them an opportunity. It's remembering where they came from and being able to respond in kind. Because it, it isn't just remembering where I came from. 
It's also being able to respond to anybody else to give them the same opportunity. And if I'm grumbling about not getting paid as much as the one-hour worker, then I'm not giving the one-hour worker the opportunity that God has called me to give him. Those of us in the church, those of us in the vineyard versus those of us who are on the outside. So like the context of the parable, a 12-hour worker trying to grasp and show off, that's the context of our parable this week because we have a 12-hour worker who's doing that. Matthew 18, verse 21, Peter came and said to him, Lord, if another member of the church sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? Now, like I said, I know Peter a little bit, and I always, I'm a little bit cynical whenever Peter comes up with something like this. Because the rabbis have already concluded, it is written in the Talmud that three is enough for someone who commits the same sin against you. If you can forgive it up to three times, you've done more than enough. It's already known. It's written in the Talmud. So what did Peter do? He doubled it and added one. Right? He doubled it and added one. Now, you knowing what you know about Peter... Is he really uh, willing to do this for someone else? Or is he just kind of showing off for his teacher right now? I think at least he's trying. He's thinking, he's applying his teacher's hypothesis that he gave probably last year about turning the other cheek. I want Jesus to know I'm listening. I want him to know that I can apply this. I heard that the rabbi said three, I say seven. Isn't that good? And Jesus says, I don't say seven. I say what? 70 times seven. Wait, whoa, whoa, what? 490? That's a bridge too far, don't you think? Man. Well, it would be if we were operating in the kingdom of this world. But this parable is about to begin the way that the others one, other one last week began, and that is the kingdom of, of heaven may then be compared to. But also notice, he sets it up. He's not talking about crime and punishment. He's not talking about civil crime and punishment, which, by the way, would be very dangerous to forgive 490 times. That's not what he's talking about. Remember, it started by Peter saying, another member of the church so what's he, what, what sin is he talking about? It's whatever sin is personally committed within the church. In other words, something unchristlike done to another member of the body of Christ. So be real careful before you think we should apply this to civil law. That's not what Peter's talking about. But 490 is not too bad, he says. It's not, it's not you know, Jesus says it's not too bad to be able to forgive your brother. Why? Because he's your brother. He's your sister. She's your sister. He's your brother in Christ. See, for the selfish hearts of Jeremiah 17, this just seems too far. It seems unsafe. So the parable's told to get at that unfairness that we looked at last week. And this week's begins the same. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. 
a king settling accounts. I'm not sure. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not sure what's going on here. Nobody is quite sure of the dynamic that's going on here. But apparently, these slaves owe the king money. So it could have been some sort of custodial arrangement that they had, that the, that the king gave them some of his land and said, I want you to work it, and as you work it, you, you, you pay me rent. It could have been some sort of tenant situation like that. It could have been slaves that worked for him that embezzled from them. We really don't know. But what he's saying is, is that the bill is due now. You're not living up to the agreement that we had. And as a king, this relationship is no longer tenable from my economic standpoint. It's time to pay up. We're not 100% sure. So he begins the reckoning. And the one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 10,000 talents. Talents. And as he could not pay, his Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all possessions and payment then to be made. You think he's going to make 10,000 talents out of that sale? The sale's not the point, it's the debt that he owes the king. He owns 10,000 talents. Doesn't sound too bad, does it? It would be. Not too bad if it were, say, $10,000. But it isn't $10,000. If it was, it wouldn't be that bad. Average credit card debt in this country right now is about $12,000. So, hey, most of us are walking around with that kind of debt. Actually, a talent (laughs) was 15 years of denarii. Remember what a denarius was? A denarius was a day's wage. Okay, a day's wage. One talent is 15 years of daily wages. Are you getting me here? If you work minimum wage full time right now in the state of Arizona, you will make $27,560, which is kind of laughable. Anybody can survive on $27,000 a year? Maybe if you don't have a house, maybe if you don't have uh, bills to pay, maybe if you don't have kids, maybe if you don't want to eat. But this guy has a what? He's got a family, doesn't he? All right? So he's not talking retirement wages here. These are a worker's daily wages. So minimum wage, right now, if you work full time, you would, uh, for a year, it would be 430, uh, well, no, the 15 years wage, the one talent is $413,000. Now multiply that by 10,000. We're talking $4.134 billion that this guy owes the king. I don't know how he got that far in debt. But that's what he owes. The historian Josephus says this, that the tax revenue, the entire tax revenue for Judah, Idumea, and Samaria, so the entire surrounding region of Israel in 4 BC was 600 talents. The entire tax revenue was 600 talents. That means Rome only collected 600 talents from the entire nation of Israel in 4 BC. Galilee alone was 300. And this guy owes 
10,000. What I love about this is who would know that figure cold? How about Matthew the tax collector? So this is why this caught Matthew's ears. He said, whoa, well, hold on, 10,000? You think Matthew stood up in the middle of that meeting in that class and goes, uh, Lord, isn't that crazy, 10,000? You know that we only collected 600 from the entire nation a few years ago. Jesus says, yeah, I know. I know how much it is. So you think he can pay this off? Does he ever have a hope to be able to pay this off? A slave laborer? Not a hope. So what's left to do? What's left to do? Ask, right? He falls on his knees saying, have what? Patience with me and I will pay you everything. Notice he didn't ask for what? He didn't ask for forgiveness. He comes up with this stupid, ludicrous claim is that if he would just have patience, I will pay you off. It's a ludicrous claim to make because it is a ludicrous debt. There is no way, absolutely no way. But the king says, eh, okay. I think the king just wants to see him try. Out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and did what? Forgave the debt. The king sees it differently. We may be able to call him naive, but again, it's his, right? It's his debt. He can do with it what he wants. It's his kingdom. That's his slave. I can do whatever I want. Okay, so it's yours. So how does our forgiven debtor see it, though? What does he do with this newfound mercy that has been shown upon him? He leaves, and he comes upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. Now we're talking 100 days wages versus 10,000 times 15, okay? 100 days wage and seized him by the throat and said, pay me what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Where did those words come out? Of whose mouth before? Exactly the same words. But he refused. And he went and threw him into prison until he could pay the debt. A hundred denarii, by the way, would be about $10,000. Take him a hundred days to pay it off. A hundred days. If he could give him a hundred days, he could pay it off. The other guy is going to need 170,000 years just to start. You know, we're not even talking about interest here. I think the Romans knew a little bit about interest, probably, but anyway. By the way, he throws the 100 denarii debt, debtor into the prison that he was just released from. He throws him into the same prison. So it's incredible blindness, isn't it? Incredible deceit. Jeremiah 17.9 is well at work in our 10,000 talent debtor. Not to see his own sin. And by the way, not to see his own sin that is literally four billion times worse. Jesus puts a number on this, if you want it. Four billion times worse. He doesn't see that sin, and he throws the other guy into prison for a hundred days worth of debt. 
What's interesting is that it elicits a response. And I love that the, Jesus says the response comes from the, his fellow what? His fellow slaves. It comes from the body of believers or the body of slaves in the king. It comes from the other workers. It comes from the other members of the church. Fellow slaves saw what had happened. They were greatly what? They were greatly distressed. And they went and they reported their, to their Lord all that had taken place. Their hearts may have been started out as Jeremiah 17, 9, but as the king let them out of prison, something happened to their hearts, and all of a sudden now they're distressed at what took place. They're feeling something for their fellow slave. Their personal forgiveness has permeated their hearts, and they do the only thing they can do is report to the king. We've got to give him a reason. By the way, who's the only guy besides the guy that the, that the debt is owed to that could release that guy from the prison? Is the king. He's the only one that can do it. They go directly to the king and report to him. And how did the king respond? The Lord summoned him and said to him, you wicked what? Slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. I did it because you asked me. By the way, he, didn't, he, didn't, he said, I didn't do it because of your stupid claim that you could pay me back. I didn't do it because you were stupid. I did it because you asked me. I did it because you had mercy upon me. All that debt. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? I love that question because you hear it again as we heard it last week in chapter 20. Should you not have had that's the same as the vineyard owner saying, am I not allowed? Should my mercy had not been allowed to permeate your heart? What happened? And in his anger, he handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. Hmm. You told me you could pay it back. All right, give it a shot. So my heavenly Father will also do to every one of you who do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Again, Jeremiah 17, 9, where is this looking to permeate? Where is mercy supposed to uh, eventually manifest itself in the heart of the ones shown mercy to? If it doesn't, Father says, eh, okay. If that's what you want, you want to try and pay it back, give it a shot. My father will do to every one of you. And right here in the parable, and all the commentators, uh, all the commentators that I read about this parable leading up to this, when they get to the explanation, when they get to this part right here, they said this is immediately when we begin to try to shave the edges off of it. This is immediately when we try to begin to say, you know what, I don't think it really is as harsh as what he's saying. They start talking about Jesus speaking metaphorically. We start talking about, yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's a parable though. Remember how we started with parables? Parables are children's story. You wanna be harder on children. You wanna shock them into, into believing. And actually, this is as stark, as brutal, as harsh as it sounds. I don't like picturing it. I don't like picturing the father angry with anyone. Because sometimes it seems to go against then what I feel we should be about. It seems, 
a, a magic word, seems to go against his grace and mercy. But I want you to note who he's angry with. He's not angry with the sinner. He's not angry with the dead. He's angry with a sinner who's disguised as a saint. He's angry with somebody who took his mercy and walked away and will not give it to anybody else. The harshest rebuke, maybe the only rebuke Jesus ever speaks is for those who already claim to be believers. You don't see him rebuking tax collectors and prostitutes. Why? Because they're coming to him looking for that 10,000 talent forgiveness because they know he'll give it to them. They're the only ones that could recognize the outside voice. And I ask you this, you know, I talked uh, two weeks ago about how the outside voice was quiet and behind the scenes and it was hidden. Does the outside voice ever get so loud that it's deafening? Yeah, it does to people who can't hear it. It does to the people on the inside who will not let his mercy permeate their hearts. To them, the outside voice all of a sudden now is screeching. And they quit listening. And they begin to metaphorize or metaphorically look at the parables in order for them to be able to swallow it. Luke records another version of this parable, but in a different setting. And it's in our scripture reading. Grady read it to us. And it, one, it, it, it might be the one where the narrative in which it's spoken and the parable itself will come together to give us an idea of what this outside voice may sound like, what it does sound like to people who can't hear it, to people who, who find it grating, who find it the opposite of their cherished views. And we know that a Pharisee invited him to dinner, a Pharisee. One of those guys, and remember, I always point this out, it wasn't all Pharisees, okay? And Pharisee does not equal Jew. It was, it was a certain group of Pharisees. It was a particular uh, brand of Pharisees. It wasn't all of them, but it's one of those guys that seemed to have the most trouble with the outside voice. That self-righteous one that seems to just know who belongs and who doesn't and places himself at the gate and the door as to uh, figuring out who's allowed in and who isn't. He invites him to dinner and they're all at dinner. Jesus accepted his invitation. A woman shows up and all Matthew and Mark both say about the woman and all Luke say about the woman is that she is a sinner. So we know she's a woman who happens to be a sinner. And when that is put together, it's just their delicate way of saying that she is guilty of a particular woman's sin. This particular woman's sin was that she was a prostitute. And it fits. Simon lived in Bethany. Bethany is Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' hometown. And Bethany's not that big. You think everybody in Bethany know who's, knows who Mary is? This is where she lived and grew up before she headed out to places like Magdala and picked up a nickname like the Magdalene. So now when she comes back home, she's labeled. A woman comes up who is a what? Who is a sinner. And she disrupts this dinner. And when I say disrupt, I mean completely disrupt. 
disrupts it completely. We're told that she busts open this, this jar of oil and puts it on his head and then goes down to his feet and is down kissing and bathing his feet with her tears and wiping it with her hair. Don't you think that would disrupt a normal social gathering? Especially a gathering in the first century. I pointed this out. You have to remember that um, I, I heard, I heard uh, someone uh, preach once that tried to uh, show how shocking this was, but that also that Mary somehow pulled this off without anybody knowing she was there. And the reason that this, this pastor was able to, to do that, surmise that, because of course they're sitting at a table that's up to here, right? And they're, they're sitting about 90 degrees and the table's about this high. She claimed, he claimed that she had been hiding under the table and the only thing that alerted anybody to, their, to her presence was the smell of the oil which is ridiculous. Because a first century table was no higher than this. And you didn't put your feet underneath it. You laid down beside it. You have your feet straight out. Both, all three of the gospels say that Mary is standing behind him and wiping his feet. She literally is hunched over. She's bent over his shoulders. She's laying on his chest and she's wiping his feet. What I love about it is that she doesn't care. She doesn't care what it looks like. She doesn't care what they think. She doesn't care about her reputation anymore. She only cared about getting to him. And the men, all the men, and they were all men at the table. They can't hang. They can't handle it. They know who she is. The Pharisee that invited him said to himself, if this man knew, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. For she is a what? She's a sinner. Hey, by the way, Simon's not a prophet. How does he know? We kind of surmise how he knows, don't we? We know how he knows. He knows from personal experience who she is is. Probably more than one guy at that table knows from personal experience who she is and what she does. But such a righteous thing to do at this point, to be able to point out that this Galilean is a second-rate prophet. It's what you call a backhanded compliment, right? He's acknowledging that he's a prophet, but he's not a good enough prophet to surmise who this woman is. But it looks good. It looks as a uh, righteous thing to do. He looks good by pointing this out. This Galilean can't be who he claims. He's probably a prophet, but he's not as good a prophet if he can't figure this one out. Then Jesus tells them the Lucan version of the parable that we just read. Two debtors, just not quite in detail and not great. One has a debt 10 times greater than the other, both of them forgiven. Which one will love the forgiver more, he asks. And Simon actually gives him the right answer. He says, I guess the one who was uh, forgiven more. And Jesus said, you're right. You are absolutely right. And then went on to point out at this point right here, who is the greatest debtor? The self-righteous host and his self-righteous guests who invited Jesus for who knows what. Sounds like he invited him kind of to humiliate him. He didn't greet him the way that any host would. 
I guarantee you that every other guest at that table got what Jesus claimed he didn't get. Got a kiss at the door, got anointed with oil, and got his feet washed before, he was put down, before they were put down at the table. And he points out that you didn't do that to me. I don't know why he invited Jesus except maybe to humiliate him. So he went on to say, he went on, and, and actually, I don't actually believe that Jesus believes this. I don't think that he believes that the most notorious prostitute of the area is the greatest debtor at this table. He's trying to point out to Simon that he is. He didn't do any of these things. And she's not only doing them, she's not only doing what you were supposed to do, she's doing it for the right reasons. She's doing it because Jesus knows what he did for her, right? Woman, where are your accusers? I don't know, sir. I don't accuse you either. So I'm not sure we grasp the scene. Like I said, we sanitize it. And we sanitize it so it's easier to listen to. So it may be more palatable to our ears. So they go to the one place that they, the the self-righteous at the table go to the one place, the only place that they're given that they can. He can't be a prophet if he doesn't know. They go to theological argument, arguing over whether or not he can be a prophet, arguing over whether or not the doctrine of the Messiah is right. My, My version of the doctrine of the Messiah or your version of the doctrine of the Messiah. They can't forgive her because they don't see her in themselves. I may not be perfect, but at least I'm not her. I may not be perfect, but at least I'm not like that tax collector standing over there. But we forget, as we've learned in Galatians, right, guys, in Galatians? The law doesn't care about the amount of imperfect you are. You can keep 99.9% of it. Fail on that one-tenth of a percent, and guess what? You failed it all. The law doesn't care about the amount of imperfection that you are. It just condemns us for not being perfect. So they're all able to justify their positions of moral superiority all because they simply aren't prostitutes. And they can look good doing it. They can look good condemning her for that. Even Judas goes after her. He goes after her for wasting the perfume and in, a, in another show of self-righteousness stands up and says, we could do this to feed the poor. We could have used it to feed the poor. And Mark goes on to say, you know what? I knew Judas. He didn't care about feeding the poor, but it sure makes him look good at that point, doesn't it? He sure rings a bell with his audience. He gets to condemn her and look righteous because we could have fed this to the poor. And they all do this at this table, every one of them. So Jesus decides within their hearing to kind of cut through it all and short circuit all. He says to her, "Um, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she's shown great love, but the one to whom is given is given little. He looked to her and he said, your sins are forgiven. And then, of course, the men at the table, they they all go what? They all question what? Whoa, wait a minute. This man can forgive sins? See? Argument is immediately switched to theological, something I can argue about. I can't confess that he can forgive sins because I'm not willing to take my sin to him. 
It's a whole lot more fun and it's a whole lot easier and it's whole, it looks a whole lot more righteous than to stand here and compare myself to this prostitute and look good doing it. So Jesus' followers have to go beyond this. He can forgive because it's his to forgive. It's what we learned last week. If he's forgiven us, then we are to forgive. There isn't anything short. There's nothing I can shave off of this. There isn't any hook to be let off of. And it isn't because we're purer than anyone else, but because our hearts are permeated with what has been forgiven us. If we're at all honest with God, we've been forgiven a billion times more than anyone else out there that we're looking to keep out because we seem to be more righteous than them. Your faith has saved you, he told her. Go in peace. <laughs> Salvation, righteousness, forgiveness, atonement, all by what? All by faith. Which, by the way, take it one step further, he has to give us. We don't even have faith on our own. He has to give us all a measure of faith. So even that which we have to have in order to achieve his righteousness, he has to give us in the first place. all because he decided to give it to anyone who would believe, all because, as the vineyard owner said, am I allowed to do what I want with what is my own? And I choose to give it to you, if you would just believe me. But the outward appearance, it, appears, it appeals so much to the deceptive heart. Look what it did to Simon and the men at these tables. Adherence to a, a doctrine code, uh, a, 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 a law written on paper or on the tablet. It looked good. It looks good. And guess what? It costs absolutely nothing. The reward is an appearance of moral superiority. That's what the reward is. Jesus said, if you're doing this to look good in front of someone else, congratulations, you have your reward. But don't be expected to be rewarded from your Father in heaven because he rewards those in secret who come to him in secret. Since they can't forgive her, for her sexual immorality and compared to who they are, then they will argue that Jesus can't do it either. Something to think about. I mean, it really is. Look what ad adherence did to our 2,000 year history as a church. What has the church been willing to overlook in its theology in order to look good for the past 2,000 years? Racism, anti-Semitism, slavery, oppression of women. Today, we're still a segregated church. A church that only men have a particular privilege in. And what separates and what segregates? What haven't we understood? 2,000 years, we've come all this way and the church, according to prophecy, is no better off than the day we started. As a matter of fact, it's worse because we are rich and have need of nothing. Because it's been a whole lot easier to point out everyone else's debt than it is to come to him with ours. We're even forced to use forgiveness inappropriately. I know it's a little late. I don't want to spend too much time on this. 
But as I said before, the kingdom in church rules of forgiveness we have taken and we've tried to force it upon the world out there and we've gotten the message completely messed up. As a matter of fact, we've taken Christian forgiveness and we've given it a bad mark because we try to apply it then to what may be going on out there. And other people who know a little bit about God look at it and say, how can you Christians cheapen forgiveness like this? You know why? Because it still, it looks good and it costs us nothing. Way, way back 20 years ago in the ancient days of school shootings, back when school shootings happened and they actually got our attention, there was one in Kentucky. And there was a group of Christian students who, who gathered around one of, the, one of the chalk outlines, which they did back then, of, of one of the bodies. And they held up signs saying, we forgive you, Mark. And there were more than one observer that looked and said, for as far as we know, Mark hasn't even asked for forgiveness. Is the parents of the child that you're standing around, are they able to forgive him? See, it costs them nothing to stand there and do that. But the Christian, the, the fellow Christians look and say, look how Christ-like that is. And that venue wasn't meant where this 10,000 talent forgiveness was supposed to be. It's supposed to be inside the church. It's supposed to be quiet. It's supposed to be behind the scenes. What's it cost me to forgive a kid who shot up a school? All it does is make me look good when I say that I forgive him the way Jesus would forgive him. You talk about an evil heart that would even take the forgiveness of Christ and turn it into something selfish. By the way, the same thing if anybody in the church tells a woman she has to go back home to an abusive husband in order to forgive him. It costs a self-righteous patriarchal pastor nothing to do that, but it costs the woman everything. We don't have to put ourselves into, especially women and children, you don't put them in situations of abuse in order to prove to somebody that you forgive them. There are ways to forgive them without ever having to go near them again. See, but it costs us nothing to claim it. See, it's supposed to be our own forgiveness. It's supposed to permeate ourselves. What he has done for us that's supposed to permeate our heart and dictates our actions as to whether or not they are merciful as opposed to adhering to a letter or a standard. Real quick. Matthew and Mark are the only ones that start the parable this way, that start the whole thing this way. Um, I'm sorry, I didn't get to these, but. Matthew starts it this way, he says, when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the what? The leper. While he was in Bethany, according to Mark, it says, at the home of Simon the what? They seem to just throw this in. This actually uh, would matter, if you will, to the Hebrews that are listening to it, to the Jewish audience that's listening to it. Luke, as a Greek, I don't think he gets it. He doesn't understand. He doesn't describe Simon as a leper. He just describes him as a Pharisee that invited him. 
See, if Simon was a leper, though, he would have to be cleansed at this point. Something would have had to happen to him in order for him to be able to host this party. The law would not allow him even to be in any of the circles of Bethany society, let alone for him to be able to host a party that he has all of these people at. The law is specific. So obviously, he's known as a leper, but he has been what? He's been cleansed, which means, and we're not 100% sure, but it means that there's a good chance that out of the dozen or so lepers that were cleansed by Jesus, Simon was one of them. Ellen White once said that leprosy was a fit symbol for sin because it attacks from the inside. Nobody can see the, what happens and what goes on on the inside. But all of a sudden what happens after a few years is the damage begins to be seen outside. It deadens us from the inside out. Remember, a leper cannot feel pain. It acts on the, on the neurons that transmit pain. It deadens us from the inside. She said that it was such a good uh, fit symbol for sin that when Jesus comes to heal the leper, he does not heal leprosy. It is, the, it is not a disease to be healed. It's a metaphor to be cleansed. You look at your scripture from beginning to end. A leper is never healed. A leper is cleansed. And if you had it, and Simon believed this, I know that he did. If you had it, you were considered the worst of sinners because it's obvious that God, uh, you had, whatever it was, you had done it to God personally and God took it personally. They referred to leprosy as the stroke, literally because you were stroked by the finger of God. So much so that you look what the law says about it. You're not even allowed to breathe the same air as a leper let alone touch him. Which, by the way, then the first encounter that Jesus has with a leper, what's the first thing that he does? He takes him by the hand. So Simon apparently was cleansed and then decided he needed to earn that. He becomes zealous against a particular type of sins, sins that he sees makes everyone unclean that it touches. And in doing so, he forgets what he was ordered to go through. Now we assume that Jesus did this with all the lepers that he healed, but we only have healed, cleansed. You, you guys should have called me on that, but I caught you before. I, I know you would have called me on that, right? But I, I, I caught myself. Of all the people that he cleansed, he told them to go back to the priest, right? Go back to the priest and go through the ceremony that you're supposed to go through. And I think that Simon forgot about this ceremony. The priest tells you to go and get two sparrows. You bring two little sparrows, two little sparrows that you hold in the hand. And he, he has a hyssop sprig and he has a scarlet thread and he has a bowl and he, and he hands it to you. And you go out down to the Kidron and you get this living water, water that flows. So you have this bowl full of living water and these two birds and this sprig of hyssop, if you will. And then the priest looks at you and says, all right, take one of those birds and hold it over the water and use your thumb to grind its head off. Slaughter the bird over the bowl and drip the blood into the water itself. And as soon as he does, the priest takes the sprig and he begins to stir the water and he begins to stir the blood and the water together. 
And then he pulls the sprig out and he sprinkles it on, on this cleansed leper's ear and upon his right thumb and upon his right toe. From head to toe, the blood and the water are placed upon him. And then he says, now, give me the other bird. The other bird he takes and he dips it into the bowl of water and the blood and the water and all of the mess is all over that bird and he hands it back and he says, now take it out to the field and release it. So you imagine that it took a while because that bird's not gonna be able to fly until it what? Until it dries off. I love that, that part right there. That part gives the leper the, the uh, I guess, the space to be able to, to ponder what just has happened here, everything that's happened. Jesus has, has uh, cleansed me of this. I no longer have any of this, and now I've gone through this. And, and, and he says, I know that that leprosy was part of my sin. Did they figure out in that time that they're waiting for the sun to dry in order for that bird to fly away? Because when, he, when, he, when it gets dry, that's what he told him, release him into the field. The sin that deadened us were cleansed by his blood and his water. And then we're set free. The blood of your brother and the water of life cleanses you and then you are set free. See, I just think that Simon, somewhere along the line, forgot that. And that's why Jesus says, you know, I say to you then, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. If we find ourselves unable to love, if we find ourselves loving little, if we're coming up against friends and enemies that we can't love as ourselves, then maybe, just maybe, what we're forgetting is what we've been forgiven. So Gene just warns us too, we gotta check that. We gotta check it, we gotta get a hold of it. Sometimes the outside voice is deafening. And I just say, let's not be deaf to it today. Not when it comes to our own sin and what we've been forgiven and then what we're asked to do for others. Thank you all for a little extra time. Happy Sabbath.